Hello, and welcome to the Virtue Podcast. This is Christy Robillard, and I'll be teaching Session 3 of Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 37. We're still very early into Jesus' most famous sermon, and at this point, Jesus probably still hasn't even paused to take his first breath. And while his first listeners were just beginning to catch on, I feel like we can relate. We, too, are just beginning to catch on. Because while this sermon is spoken simply, deep spiritual truths are being communicated. They are multilayered beyond the superficial verbiage as Jesus describes his kingdom and kingdom living. This sermon is all about the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Jesus is teaching something that is new to their ears, but something they had already been witness to as they watched how Jesus lived. Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among men, and we saw His glory. That's John 1.14. As you know, Jesus is just one year into His public ministry at this point as He taught in Capernaum. But as Jesus taught— They recognized him in every sentence as he described kingdom life. And that is at the heart of this sermon, that when we speak to others about the kingdom of God, about our salvation, about our life in Christ, maybe our words are new to their ears, but it should be something that they've already witnessed as they have watched us, something new, but also something familiar. We have studied the Beatitudes, which are the blessings we have when we have the right heart, and now we have transitioned into the similitudes, where Jesus describes who and what we are by using comparisons, salt and light. And Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. Spurgeon has said, We shine because we have light, and we are seen because we shine. You see, it's about who we are. We are light. You cannot hide light. You can shade it, but you can't really hide it. And so the exhortation by Jesus is shine. Let the world see who you really are, because when they see who you really are, they'll see who Jesus really is. And you know what? Being light is a miraculous thing that Jesus has done for us. It really is. But I think we take it for granted. So listen to what Paul writes about this in Ephesians 5 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. What's interesting is Paul doesn't say you were in darkness or of the darkness. He says you were darkness. In my Bible, I have underscored the words were and are from that Ephesians 5, 8 verse. Because before receiving Christ, we were just darkness. And in contrast, being in Christ, we are now light in the Lord. Remember the creation story when the first thing God spoke into existence was light, and the next thing he did was separate the light from the darkness? Light and darkness are meant to be separate. Only God could do that then, and He's the only one who can do that now. We don't create our own light by walking like Jesus. We walk like Jesus because He has made us light. 
It's truly a miracle. But there's more to appreciate about this miracle. 1 John 1.5 reads that God is light. In Genesis 1.26 and 27, we read that we are made in God's image. We were made to be light because we are image bearers of God. Of His fullness, we have all received, John 1.16. Our being light goes all the way back to the very beginning. It's who He is, and it's who we are. I think we can kind of get caught up in the good works of this similitude and forget all about the exciting miracle that we actually are. So again, Jesus is teaching something new, but it is also familiar. Its foundation is actually from the beginning of creation. It's an exciting thing to think about being light, and it's easy to sing the song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine, until it's not. As I meditated on this word from Jesus about letting our light shine, it's easy to realize the only reason for an exhortation like this is because at times we are tempted to hide who we are. Jesus got this. He understood. He may have already witnessed some of this, but he certainly knew what was to come, that there would be timidity and fear, that there would even be shame, that some of his followers would hide who they were, even separating themselves from him. Only one year later, while Jesus was teaching yet again in Capernaum, John writes in chapter 6, verse 66, that many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And of course, we all remember when Peter denied knowing Jesus after Jesus was arrested in the garden. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would Paul write such a thing unless he had seen believers, for whatever reason, be ashamed of the gospel? And I wonder if bold and suffering Paul himself had moments of feeling a little ashamed. It seems Paul understood those feelings but he didn't give in to them. Isn't it interesting and sad how at times we can be bold and unashamed and share our faith, letting our light shine brightly, and then at other times without warning, find ourselves in a situation where we feel timid and hesitant, not wanting to shine. That's being ashamed of the gospel. Doesn't that just stab you in the heart to realize, after all that Jesus has done, that maybe you've been ashamed of the gospel at times in your life? It does me. But I can tell you, the more you practice being unashamed of the gospel, the more unashamed of the gospel you will be. And so now, after being told who we are, the sermon tone suddenly changes, and it seems Jesus is taking a hard left turn as he begins to speak about the law. And I wonder, could this have been when Jesus actually took his first intentional breath for himself and maybe even for impact. Verse 17 reads, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. It's important that Jesus shares this at this point in the sermon. It is the linchpin of the entire sermon because he is establishing his authority over all things, including the law and the prophets, that he is actually their fulfillment. At that time, the law was everything about the letter, rules and regulations, and the law was everything about life for a Jew. But the intention of the law had been taken captive by men twisting, adding, and using it for their own purposes. And so I imagine at this point, 
a disciple or two or three, maybe even many, may have raised their hands, wait, what did you just say, Jesus? Because this is a very radical statement made by Jesus. It even sounds heretical. Who has ever made such a statement and thought they could live? But again, Jesus is teaching something new, but also something familiar, things they had already witnessed about him. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. That's John 1.17. And so Jesus, having established he is the one, he is the only one who has full authority to speak on all matters of life, is now ready to get into the nitty-gritty of the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law, point by point, through a series of statements, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Okay, so reading now from verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment by the court. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. So this is serious. So there are a couple of points to be made here. First, Jesus is highlighting that men have added to his word by saying, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment by the court. The word in God's commandment is simply, you shall not murder, period, Exodus 20, 13. The portion about being subject to judgment by the courts is man adding to Scripture. Jesus gets to the spirit of the law. Words matter because words are powerful. In Eugene Peterson's The Message, he concludes that portion of Scripture with these words. The simple moral fact is that words kill. We all know this is true, don't we? We've all experienced killing words as the offended and even as the offender. The word angry, as used in this verse, is a strong word denoting to be exasperated or even enraged. This is you getting right into another believer's face, even to the point of calling them an idiot or a fool. The verbiage gives us the sense that this is even a person who is somewhat out of control, not thinking about the consequences of their anger. This is undisciplined emotion. But remember— This is what the Word says. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. That's 2 Timothy 1.7. We've all experienced regrets when we didn't exercise self-control. But this should not be our typical behavior. No believer should ever be known as a hothead. And when you are wrong, you must take full responsibility. No sincere apology should ever be said with a but in it. Take full responsibility, giving no excuses for your behavior. Own it and apologize for it. Repent and have a real conversation with the Lord about what you've done. And just a little side note, I thought about this. When Jesus taught this sermon, it's all before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit upon his followers. If he expected them to understand and be able to fulfill the spirit of the law, which is so much more difficult than crossing T's and dotting I's, how much more are we able to fulfill the spirit of the law today with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? We can do this and so much more. But what do you do when you're the offended and not the offender? At another time, about a year later, Peter would ask this very question. 
Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. That's Matthew 18, 21 through 22. This means forgiven people are forgivers of people, especially of other Christians. Otherwise, we become the one who sins when we hold on to unforgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, Matthew 6, 12. Unforgiveness only destroys our peace, hour by hour, day by day. Forgiveness is not easy, but it is necessary. Sometimes this is just an outburst of anger, but sometimes it can go beyond a moment of killing words. It can actually be persistent, vindictive, and even meant to harm a person's reputation. David writes about this type of hurt in Psalm 55 as he pours out his heart to the Lord, which is the very first thing that we should do. David cries, If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. As for me, I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and He hears my voice. He rescues me unharmed from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. And then David counsels himself with this great word for all of us from verse 22 of Psalm 55. He says, Cast your cares on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. If we can relate to David's words— then be counseled by them also. God is able to do all things that concern us, including guarding our reputation. If God wants to clear the air and make known the truth, He can do so in a heartbeat. And as you wait on God, let Him have His way with you. He has things that He wants to work into you as well. Don't worry about guarding your reputation. The Bible doesn't tell us to guard our reputations, but to build them. What we are told to guard is our hearts, Proverbs 4.23. You take care of what matters to God, and He'll take care of what matters to you. This is the heart of this teaching, including verses 23 through 26. Nothing more needs to be said by myself about those verses. They are plain and clear. Just be a man or a woman of integrity, keeping a clear conscience, as 1 Peter 3.16 reads. And now to verses 27 through 32. Jesus speaks about adultery, then marriage, and divorce. Jesus quickly gets to the heart of the problem, which is a problem with the heart, lust. The sin of lust is, I must have it whether it's sexual in nature outside of marriage or whether it is wanting to get out of the marriage. It's all about what I want instead of what God wants. Jesus identifies the root of the problem, but he also gives the remedy, the how-to, in dealing with the temptation of sexual sin. But this can be applied to all types of temptations to sin. You must be severe by removing the temptation, whatever the cost You cannot just will yourself out of lust. You must remove yourself from the lustful temptation. This is what Jesus is really saying. Lust is a sin with devastating and long-lasting consequences, so it must be dealt with equal severity. 
get off social media, cancel your account. Don't just remove the app temporarily from your device. If you can't handle your smartphone, then get a dumb phone. If it's entertainment, programs you watch, cancel your subscriptions. Just stop being a viewer. If it's someone you work with, Apply for a different position in a different department or even with a different company. Whatever you need to do, do it. Don't have conversations with your temptations and don't try to make deals with them. You cannot. You will lose. And whatever you think is lost in the moment, God is able to restore by blessing your obedience to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You will gain far more than you can possibly lose. And if you don't obey His voice— your losses will be far more and may likely never be restored. So on the topic of divorce, Jesus deals with this in more depth in Matthew 19. Divorce is not God's plan. Jesus said divorce has been permitted by Moses because of the hardness of their hearts. But in the beginning, it has not been this way. That's Matthew 19.8. Divorce is painful for the two who are married And if they have children, it is extremely painful and even damaging. And also for extended family members, everyone gets hurt. Divorce is complicated, and you can be a victim of it for a multitude of reasons. Maybe you are divorced, and not because you wanted it. You are a victim of divorce. Maybe you needed to initiate the divorce for extreme circumstances. You're still a victim of divorce. It wasn't something you wanted, but it was something you felt the Lord led you to for your safety and maybe that of your children. You know, often Christians who have been victims of divorce feel a certain stigma, whether real or perceived, within Christian circles. You may even feel like you want to carry a sign of explanation. I fought for my marriage. You don't know how hard— but I lost. You just keep your heart right with the Lord and know where you stand with Him. That's all that really matters. Let Him deal with the others. And if you're simply dissatisfied in your marriage, deal with it and work at it. You're not allowed to just opt out. And now for the last verses of our passage of study, verses 33 through 37, Jesus warns about making vows. These are predecessor words which attempt to qualify the validity of a statement. The Pharisees commonly would use vows by the city of Jerusalem, heaven, earth, or even some type of the body part to avoid the sin of swearing by God's name. It was just a game they played with themselves, a foolish game. God knew and God knows. Jesus tells us that we should have such an excellent reputation that our statements should simply be yes or no. In other words, Jesus is saying, say what you mean and mean what you say. That's all. No Christian man or woman should ever need to qualify their statements with an oath. In fact, that is the first clue that maybe that man or woman probably tells lies when it suits them. Just speak truth in all interactions and relationships and let your reputation support what you say. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is beautiful, but it's also difficult. There's a a lot of serious and important teaching that is taking place as Jesus is describing kingdom life and prescribing kingdom life from who we are to the nitty-gritty of how we are to live as citizens under his kingship. And it's all about having the right heart. Jesus taught something new, 
but it was also something very familiar as his followers kept their eyes on him. Oswald Chambers has said the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is, in effect, narrow all your interests until the attitude of mind and heart and body is concentration on Jesus Christ. I think that summarizes it really well. I have a small wall art piece that my brother gave me years ago, and it reads, I never said it would be easy. I only said it would be worth it. It's not easy. Matters of the heart never are, but it will be worth it in this life and the life to come.